Welcome to Second City Liberty, a Chicago-centric podcast that takes a look at politics, current events, sports, and pop culture through the lens of liberty. I'm your host, Jim Hume. Thanks for tuning in. The 2024 presidential race is already well underway. A multitude of candidates from both of the major parties have announced their intentions for the highest office in the land. Libertarians will also have a choice of candidates seeking the party's nomination. The LP does not have a primary process, which means the presidential and vice presidential candidates will be selected at the party's national convention to be held in Washington, D.C. over Memorial Day weekend in 2024. My guest today is one of those candidates looking to represent the Libertarian Party on the next on the ballot next November, Mike Tremont. Hello, Mike. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for Thanks, coming on. Thanks, Jim. It's a great joy to uh, be with you. Hello to everyone in Chicagoland. Uh, let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about your, your background. I know you have a, a background in public policy, economics, law enforcement. A um, little bit about your, your background in history and, and, and find out who you are as a person. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I'll, uh, I'll try to keep this part of your program uh, brief in the interest of uh, your audience. Uh, I grew up in uh, Chicagoland, uh, grew up in Des Plaines, Mount Prospect, Arlington Heights, went to school in New York, went into the banking industry, went to uh, graduate school in Washington, D.C., uh, was very fortunate to be at a pro-free market grad program at the George Washington University, went into uh, public policy as uh, an economist, worked for a couple of uh, international agencies, worked for the White House for a couple of years, worked in Washington for a decade uh, as a as a advocate for free markets and greater competition in the financial services industries. Later on, had my own business in strategic consulting and the education of financial services executives. Did that for almost uh, a decade, taught economics at three different universities. And as a uh, second career in public policy and public service, I went to work as a police officer in uh, Broward County, Florida, relocated to uh, Florida in the early 2000s, spent many years there, spent 11 years as a police officer on the road, had a great experience. As you might imagine, it's a very different experience than being uh, an economist. But as I always told the men and women with whom I worked, if you were not an economist before becoming a police officer, being a police officer will turn you into an economist because you see the result of bad public policy up close and personal in every way from the creation of black markets to the continuation of intergenerational poverty. You see things that'll that'll break your heart, not to mention the crappy way that uh, police departments are managed. So uh, been around the block a little bit, retired from uh, police work about a year and a half ago, ran for Congress as a libertarian in Broward and Palm Beach County, Florida's District 20, and have been uh, plugging away at this, seeking the presidential nomination from the Libertarian Party uh, for almost, a, a well, more than a year now, started out with virtually zero name recognition and we like the way that things have been going we've got a very professional team put together we think that that is absolutely critical because we're running on the boldest most unapologetic of platforms we call the gold new deal 
That's our commitment to running a campaign with a policy forward attitude, uh, uncompromisingly principled and fully libertarian and 100% differentiated from Republicans and Democrats. And to pull that off, I think you need to run a campaign that is uh, built on a lot of professionalism and, and credibility. So that's what we're putting together. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned you did have you did work in uh, in Washington. I believe that was the uh, the Bush administration, the first Bush administration. That's exactly George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah. Uh, so uh, something I always like to learn about. I mean, uh, I'm assuming that you, you can kind of came from a, a Republican leaning background in that sense. What what brought you? Uh, what what made you a libertarian? What brought you to the Libertarian Party? And at what at what point? Did you make that make that switch? Sure. Uh, it's actually a coincidence that I was a Republican and worked for that administration because I was a civil servant. Uh, I went to work for the White House in the in the budget function. Uh, I was a, a registered Republican at the time. I was a young fiscal conservative uh, economist, pro market economist, and I kind of figured at the time that the Republican Party was too. And, and sort of learned the hard way that uh, the Republican Party was not all that fiscally conservative. Uh, I think I would argue that it was at least more fiscally conservative in those days than it is now. But when the president said, read my lips, no new taxes, that seemed like good stuff, right? Yep. When he very famously went back on that pledge and agreed to not only new taxes, but increased spending, that was uh, that was a tough pill to swallow. That's a tough thing for a relative youngster in this context. I uh, remained a, a registered Republican through the uh, through the '90s. Uh, a buddy of mine informed me in the late '90s. I can remember the circumstance. Uh, it was at a birthday party in the backyard, and he said, "You're a libertarian," and. Uh, my reaction was something along the lines of, I don't say horrible things to you. Why would you say such a mean thing to me? And of course, what he meant was that I didn't seem to have a, a big interest in uh, the culture wars, which were not in those days what they are these days, but they were certainly uh, launched and off and running. And the Republican Party did have an interest in pursuing public policy that would back up its... Uh, culture war interests. And that didn't, uh, of course, sit right with me. And so in that sense, you're right. I came to the Libertarian Party from what I would call the right-hand side, the side that says the economy and the world work better, work more efficiently when you let people make decisions for themselves. And it wasn't until later, until the 2000s, that I came to the Libertarian philosophy from what, what we might call the left-hand side, which is to say, even if the world did work better, if someone made decisions for you, that's no uh, excuse, that's no ethical reason, right, uh, that the government uh, should have the authority to make decisions for you. We all have the right to pursue happiness according to our own standards, make decisions for ourselves, to pursue whatever lifestyle is going to our boat. We should and make economic decisions for ourselves. We shouldn't have to ask permission from anyone. And uh, those two ideas are slightly different, but highly related. 
and uh, in that sense, I came to libertarianism from both sides eventually. I, I didn't become a registered libertarian until about the time I became a police officer in 2010. So I was uh, a cop as a libertarian, which as you might imagine, leads to some interesting conversations, but it was a great experience. Uh, yeah, we can actually let let's kind of go right into that. I know I know that uh, uh, I know there's there are some libertarians out there that do find uh, your background in law enforcement to perhaps be uh, problematic um, as being an enforcer of those the enforcer of the state. Um, how would you how would you kind of uh, address libertarians that have those feelings or uh, kind of uh, relieve those uh, those concerns that uh, that some of the, that some folks might be thinking about well law enforcement is an important function uh, if you are a minarchist and agree that the state exists for the reason uh, I would argue the sole legitimate reason of protecting your liberty you're going to need some form of uh, law enforcement communities do have a right to to come together and create, uh, and an interest in coming together and creating uh, a criminal code and making decisions about how they want that enforced. This is not a function that you want performed by a bunch of uh, Republicans. Most uh, police officers, in my experience, the ones that I worked with, most Republicans are registered, uh, I beg your pardon, most police officers are registered Republicans. Some are registered uh, Democrats. But it's a function like, uh, I would say, uh, all the other state functions that that you might believe should not be performed at all, or if you believe that they should be performed. Either way, they are not largely functions that you would be happier having a Democrat perform or a Republican perform. You want someone who uh, takes very seriously the protection of individual rights, not just from bad guys, which is, of course, a, a major piece of the motivation for a lot of people to become police officers, but to protect your rights against the state itself. One of the things that I learned as a cop is that police officers have enormous discretion on a case-by-case basis about how things play out. You are the last line of defense against state encroachment. And so it's important that uh, you have police officers with the right attitude. As everybody knows, I spend a lot of time talking about criminal justice reform because I think it's an important issue and because I learned a lot about how our system should be reformed. Not only does that mean ending the war on drugs, which is a huge problem and a huge element of that, but also the extent to which and the ways in which we need to change the way that police departments are managed, the way that police officers are, are managed. We need greater competition among agencies and for the best police officers. And I think that our communities can do a much, much better job with market forces uh, imposed at aligning police culture with the underlying values of our communities. And I think that libertarians would agree with that attitude. Yeah, um, absolutely, for sure. I mean, it, it, regardless of... Uh, regardless of who's who's going to be selecting those uh, those those you want you want to be in charge of of those folks that are that are assigned or tasked to defending your rights for sure and to kind of leave that into the hands of uh uh of the state or even you know municipal governments 
uh, the further and further it gets away from the individual, I think the, the less recourse you have. Um, I agree with you. And speaking of recourse, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is replacing qualified immunity with right. a requirement for police officers to carry, preferably in their own responsibility, to carry liability insurance in the private sector to be privately bonded. Not only because we believe in an outside check on the system from an insurance company, which would be very, very important, but also because the idea that there should be some uh, federal regime in place that says that Americans are not allowed to seek redress in court when they feel like they've been wrong, that's, un that's just fundamentally un-American. That's, that's an ethical problem. And, and so there are ways that we can boost uh, recourse accountability, uh, boosting competition and aligning police work with, uh, with our values. Uh, here, here's under, here's a kind of a law enforcement, uh, related or criminal justice related question. Uh, Illinois recently became the first state in the union to eliminate cash bail. Um, and there have been arguments, uh, complaints and, and congratulations on, on kind of both sides. Um, What's your opinion on that or uh, a good libertarian standpoint on uh, on the, the, the situation here in Illinois? I think it's yet to uh, play out. Uh, I, I'm sorry to see that the first place that it'll play out is in Illinois, because I think that there are some, uh, shall we say, other issues that are going on at the same time. And so right. I'm afraid that it's going to be difficult to discern the effects of this particular policy change when we have other things going on that need to be fixed at the same time. Having said that, uh, cash bail is a problem. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's not an ethical way to go uh, to say, well, you need to stay in jail because you don't have the coin, right? Uh, that's, a, that's a fundamental problem. That's, an, that's a real fundamental American uh, violation of the attitude I think that was behind putting our constitution together. So that I find highly problematic. I would be more optimistic if this were pl uh, playing out in a place that didn't have other cultural issues going on with regard to law enforcement and the prosecution of crime. You know, Chicago's got its other problems. You know, yes. Mayor Johnson, for example, is has got other challenges on his hands, right? And so what I fear is that if this if we don't quickly see this policy change work out well, it will catch some of the antipathy of Chicagoans in particular complaining that things are out of control and this is an element of that. So I worry about that very much. I would rather see this policy put in place someplace else uh, and and for it to have a chance to develop because it's an institutional level change. It's going to require different ways of doing business, uh, different uh, functionalities of bail bondsmen, uh, different functionalities of uh, the courts to bring people to justice when there's not money involved. It can be done. It absolutely can be done. But in any transition, uh, there are things that don't go perfectly. And sure. so I worry about the politics of it. 
Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, definitely as a libertarian, the the whole concept of cash bail is uh, is problematic for sure. It's if you have if you have the ability to pay your way out of being held in jail uh, during your trial, then you don't have to, and that is certainly a problem. On the other hand, yeah. um, uh, what it there you know the, the the problem with violent offenders being out on bail and, and, and committing additional crimes happens quite frequently here in Chicago. It's, 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 it's something that, that is a problem. So of course. we'll see how, we'll see how it plays out there. There has to be uh, I think there has to be a middle ground and there has to be some kind of solution that uh, um, that allows for that. I, I feel that if you're, if you, if you commit another crime or while, you know, while out on bail, then that, that should be it. Or while being released on recognizance, that should be it. Uh, that that should be your, your one opportunity, um, and we'll we'll see we'll see how things work out. But uh, right. I think and uh, I think that there's a there's a private sector role here that uh, in the fullness of time uh, would play out and would develop. You know, bail bondsmen have a role to play, even if the cash involved, even if the incentive is not coming from the subject him or herself. And, and that's a, an institutional shift that will have to take place over time. I just hope that we have the time for that to happen before there's a political recourse. Sure, sure. Uh, maybe uh, kind of moving on to uh, some other some other topics. Uh, we, we, we saw um, uh, the big news today was uh, former President Trump uh, being arrested uh indicted, indicted on 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 charges for uh best i can tell a conspiracy to uh overturn the election results it's a it's a little convoluted yep. there's about 70 some charges in in this indictment it's it's yep. it's it's uh it's quite extensive and supposedly there's more to come um i know our 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 chair uh angel mccardo uh, LP national chair had had kind of issued a statement the other day on the hill kind of just you know going over what what uh, her thoughts were on uh, on the whole situation i don't want to spend a lot of time on it but it is kind of topical what do you think well first of all i always think it's uh, a hornet's nest to talk about a particular case because you don't have all the facts and i'm not, i'm not going to dodge it i will give you an answer but uh the context of all of our answers has to be quite literally, we don't have all the facts. Uh, let's put it this way. If we do, if everything that there is to be known, we already know, uh, I don't find it a very compelling case. But, uh, you know, the problem with talking about individual cases, specific particular cases is, you know, extra facts arise that make you feel pretty stupid a week later. Right, and for sure. So we need to be very careful about that. Look, I, I was in New York in the 80s, so I've got a long history of reasons to dislike Donald Trump. Uh, if I accidentally say anything that sounds like uh, I've got a lot of respect for this guy, I have misspoken, okay? Having said that, I'm not a fan of the indictments uh, that have been laying at his feet so far. I, I do find them to be politically motiv motivated. That does not mean that he has behaved well. He has found ways to go right up to the line in terms of criminality. And, you know, those who argue that he has gone over the line and committed crimes, uh, 
I get it. You know, I, I, I would have a hard time defending this guy in court. And I think we all recognize it's a difficult thing to prosecute him in a criminal court as well. Right. If I may, one of the things that really bothers me, honestly, that bothers me more than the indictments was the fact that he was found civilly liable a few months ago for a sexual assault. That, yeah. uh, to, to be honest, that that bothers me more profoundly. Um, again, yeah. you know, we weren't there. Uh, so you're, you're trusting a, a jury to have done a good job of determining what the facts actually were. But through the eyes of those jurors, he was uh, responsible for that sexual assault. That's a, a more deep, more profound ethical problem for me uh, than, for example, the mishandling of documents, which I find uh, more moronic uh, than, uh, than evil, just as an, as an example. I do think uh, in the fullness of time, we are very likely to find out a lot of things that we wish we didn't know uh, regarding uh, the Biden family. And uh, I do worry that we're about to find out things that we wish weren't true uh, about Donald Trump as well. It's a very strange circumstance in, in that sense. But uh, look, you and I are, are, you know, you've got some gray hair, so do I. This is not the first time that we have seen politicians uh, misbehave in a fundamental way, in a criminal way. I grew up around Chicago. I don't know how long you've been in Chicago, but I remember our governors uh, going to jail as a matter of routine. I remember right. the, the dailies controlling the town with an iron fist. And we were all, you know, a lot of people were willing to look the other way because the town was run so well. And I don't think anyone would have accused the people in charge of Chicago during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 90s uh, of being pure as the driven snow. Uh, so I don't mean to say we should be shocked by all right. this, but it's it, it's as bad as uh, as bad as I can remember. I mean, Chicago invented election interference. I mean, that's just uh, that that was that's that's that 1960 was, stuff. Yeah. For sure, for sure. That's that's uh, that's throwing machines in the lake kind of stuff. Your youngsters, <laughs> the youngsters in your audience are going to have to look that up. But that's a real thing that happened. Yeah, that was the the uh, 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 voting machines thrown into Lake Michigan during the the Kennedy Nixon uh, election, and uh, yeah, votes went votes went missing from certain precincts that uh, that leaned sure Republican. And they, they uh, I understand they found quite a few of the machines a couple of decades ago, which is to say a couple of decades too late. Right. Uh, the paper, of course, was all destroyed. Right. Uh, but those are machines that came from uh, largely Republican districts, which right. was the way that you would control the, the extent to which it was biased. And, of course, uh, Illinois went for uh, John Kennedy and... The rest is history, as they say. That's right. Um, continuing down this uh, kind of law enforcement um, discussion, uh, relating somewhat back to some of the the Trump indictments, uh, a lot of the things that have that have come out with, with in relation to the investigation into Donald Trump, not only 
not only with the election interference, but with the uh, uh, some the uh, uh, some of the the impeachment uh, investigations. Uh, it, it really seems like uh, it's 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 pretty clear the the FBI acted uh, uh, in a biased way. Uh, the FBI acted in a borderline, if not unconstitutional manner. Uh, and this is not new. Uh, the FBI, to me, has been problematic for a long time. There is uh, no that, such thing as the FBI's golden age. <laughs> no, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, going, you know, going back to the to McCarthyism uh, and uh, you know, uh, spying on anti-war protesters in the '60s, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. Uh, they have a long history of violating and elected politicians. And elected politicians, American citizens, American uh, elected politicians, um, as as president in 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 a, in a world where you know you're running against Donald Trump and Joe Biden, which would present perhaps the best opportunity for a libertarian ever, um, ever, ever. Um, what could you do to re to reform that department to reform the the the, the Department of Justice? Because look, it, it's being it's it, it's being used. As a political weapon, uh, it is even even. Uh, but, but in the past, it's been used by Republicans as well. You're absolutely right. It's been used by both. And as we saw in the Trump case, you didn't even have to have White House leadership to push it in a certain. You know, that's just a problem with the blob. You know, there are uh, people inside of that organization from time to time. Uh, I don't know that there are at this very minute, but there have been people inside that organization from time to time who have taken it upon themselves uh, to try to push the political process in one direction or another. And as we were just discussing, this has been a problem since its inception. Uh, so I would argue, uh, Jim, that, that replacing leadership doesn't solve the problem. I think that the FBI is is structurally flawed, notwithstanding the best efforts of well-meaning people. And, you know, I, I should be careful because I certainly don't want to paint every employee of the FBI with the same brush. Notwithstanding well-meaning, hardworking, patriotic people who try not to be biased. Notwithstanding all that, the FBI is proven... <laughs> Time and again, decade after decade after decade, that it cannot live up to its mandate. It just can't. I furthermore believe that a, a, a criminal prosecutorial agency at the federal level makes a contribution to a really fundamentally inappropriate relationship between the government and citizens. And for these reasons... I would break up the FBI into pieces and sunset it uh, completely. Uh, the piece that gets involved in politics, we just don't do anymore. If you believe, and some days I believe it and most days I don't, if you believe that the FBI plays a valuable role in terms of anti-espionage, then that piece can be spun off to the Defense Department which as of this moment hasn't been quite as politicized uh, internally uh, as the FBI has been in terms of its uh, espionage work. 
and then most of what the FBI does, of course, is pursue crimes that are illegal in all the states anyway. We don't need a federal agency for any of that. And so uh, those types of functions can be spun off to state agencies. And, and I would sunset the FBI completely. By the way, that's how I feel about a number of agencies at the federal level. Notwithstanding the best efforts of a number of employees, notwithstanding very talented people who want to do the right thing by the American people, it's just that the institutions themselves are set up in a way that does not allow them, structurally, does not allow them to live up to their mandates. I would put the Federal Reserve System at the top of that list, by the way. No, absolutely. Um, Department of Education. For example, you know, that's an organization that has been manipulated by Congress and by the executive branch, uh, asking it to dole out billions of dollars to manipulate states uh, into doing uh, the bidding of the political leadership in, in the White House or otherwise in Washington. I find that creepy. You know, that would be felony kind of stuff if somebody in the private sector did it, right? If you were going around bribing state officials uh, to do things that somebody else outside the state wanted you to do, that is uh, that is creepy stuff. And so the block grants, we got to stop right away. And as anyone who spent as much time in Washington as I did knows, the only way to get rid of an agency is to make it as politically impotent as possible first and then move legislation against it. And so that means appointing new leadership of a, of a libertarian mind, which is to say someone who is disgusted with the agency, who wants to shrink it both in size and scope, and then winnow it down and then move legislation against it at the end of the day. It's a two-step process, but worth the effort. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. It, it, uh... No one can imagine anything can be done overnight in in the in the magical world where libertarians elected uh, president. Uh, nothing gets shut shut down the next day. Well, maybe the Federal Reserve, but uh, it is a, there is a process that is involved. But, uh, but you can start to... right away. You can, yeah, you can start, start on right day one. Correct. Yeah, and you can make great progress. You know, in the case of the Fed, uh, you can replace governors uh, fairly rapidly with people who believe in a rules-based system instead of this discretionary monetary policy that we've had going on, which right. would strengthen the dollar immediately. Uh, you can, uh, with executive orders, uh, replace leadership such that you can make regulatory, uh, the regulatory structure of the Fed optional toward more financial institutions. And then you can move legislation that would take the Fed's balance sheet away and put it under the auspices of the Treasury Department and make it subject to uh, legislation. I, I think Congress would welcome the idea of having legislative control over the balance sheet, which would end the midnight bailout crap. And in that sense, you would winnow down the, the Fed's uh, political power. The Fed is an enormously powerful organization politically in Washington. You would winnow down its power and then move legislation to sunset it completely. Again, a two-step process, but you can get started on that process right away. And uh, what about the IRS? The IRS is, is a different animal. Uh, I find the IRS ethically problematic in the sense that we should not have that direct financial relationship between the federal government and us as citizens. 
I think to the extent to which we believe that the Fed, that the federal government needs revenue, and we can argue about the extent to which that's true, right. but to the extent to which you allow the federal uh, government any revenue at all, it should have to go to states to get it or, you know, from user fees, although I don't want the, the federal government right. involved in business that could be handled by the private sector, but uh, nor do I want it, you know, levying uh, taxes on transactions. So I think the federal government should be required to go to states uh, to get that money. It should have to convince uh, state legislatures uh, that it's their responsibility to fund the federal government because states can stand up to the federal government in ways that we can't. Anyone in your audience who's ever been uh, audited, as I have been, knows that's an uncomfortable situation. That's a weird relationship. You are literally uh, presumed guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. Right. That is not a healthy relationship between a, a national government and its citizens. Um, so uh, let's go and kind of compare uh, your your campaign to some of the the two other parties right now. Give me three things that we can that we can present to the to the voters that really separate the libertarians from the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, three three points maybe real quick or what, let's go sure. down the road let's find sure. three things that are that well, need, that that separate us completely from the 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 two main parties yeah the big picture uh includes uh an anti-war position i i believe that uh, the american public is very much more open to an anti-war position than ever before uh if if you're a a, a peace-loving prosperity-loving democrat your party has left you. And if if you uh, believe that too much money gets spent on the Defense Department because you're a fiscal conservative and you're in the Republican Party, your party, that ship sailed two decades ago, right? And I think that there are a lot of Americans who recognize that our foreign policy does no longer represent either your interests or your values, does not represent your ethics. And parenthetically, it would be hard to argue that we're even good at it in terms of projecting military power right. in the interest of the American public. Right. You know, we're good at blowing things up and killing people and taking land and opening seaways. You know, we're good at it tactically. But in terms of accomplishing things that the American public would say was worth it, uh, look, we, we stink. And I, I think Americans are, are more open to that. And so real quick, the other things that, that immediately come to mind, uh, we're very much a pro-school choice, which is not a presidential issue, but one on which that we can lead the debate. Uh, we're very much pro-immigration, uh, which means giving the resources uh, to the border to vet people through more rapidly. When I worked for the White House, we could vet someone into the White House in 90 minutes. So I don't want to hear, I recognize it's apples and oranges, but I don't want to hear it takes years to decide whether or not we're going to trust someone to come in the United States. And this idea of telling them you can come in, but you can't work is bass backwards. I think that's stupid. Uh, I would rather a policy that says, uh, welcome to the United States. Uh, I'm going to call you in two weeks, make sure you have a job. Okay. Uh, that makes a lot more sense than you're not allowed to have a job for a couple of what? That's backwards. 
we want to be right. recruiting people, uh, not just uh, trying to keep them out and right. recruiting people willing to work. So anyway, immigration is another one. On the economic yeah. front, I do believe economic issues are very likely to rise uh, to the fore as they so often do in that final year, right? We may have a recession. I think that the Libertarian Party is going to be able to make a strong case that we're the only party you can trust when it comes to beating inflation. Other parties not only have had the opportunity to stop the Fed, they've had the obligation and they've screwed it up. We're the ones that understand inflation. It is the result of bad public policy. We're also the only party that you can trust when it comes to limiting the expansion of the federal government in size and scope. The debt crisis, the, the idea that the debt was recently downgraded, that's not because of only Republicans. That's not because of only Democrats. That is literally because those two idiots can't get along. That is literally because of the rising authoritarianism in terms of each one believing that its number one objective is to keep the other one out of power. That is a direct result of the duopoly. And the only way that you can trust an economy to work better is to limit their power, let people make decisions for themselves, let investors make decisions for themselves, let the labor market work. You cannot trust a government that shuts down part of your economy, tells you you can't go to work because of COVID. That, uh, never mind that it proved to be stupid. Uh, I'll give you stupid if you give me ethical. It was not ethical. The, the government did not have the power. The fact that it turned out to be stupid is just uh, frosting on the evil cake. Uh, like I said, I, I, I can stand stupid more than I can stand unethical. You, you cannot trust a government that tells you you can't go to work. You cannot trust a government that tells you that you have to have a shot or you're going to lose your job. The fact that that turned out to be stupid, again, that's just frosting on the evil cake. That was a bad decision from the standpoint of government authority. And you know what I worry about, Jim? The, the COVID regime, you know, the virus might be largely behind us. But the attitude of the government that says, we've learned how to control people now, right. that has massive implications for the future. You know, when you think about people worrying about climate change, for example, however you feel about climate change, you do not want a Republican or a Democrat in office when people get it in their head that we need to do something about it. To the extent to which anyone in the United States needs to do something about rising temperatures, you want the private sector to be able to allocate resources effectively and efficiently and in a way that addresses the problem not a politician. And so in right. that sense, I wouldn't trust anyone but a libertarian to be in the White House when people get it in their head that, you know, we need to to react to rising temperatures because that is a private sector resource allocation problem all day long. That's what worries me about the people that brought you uh, COVID shutdowns and vaccine mandates. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it seemed to me that it was... Uh... It was a test run, right? And uh, uh, the the number the number of the number of that of the number of people that really fell in line uh, was was kind of shocking to me. Um, it, and it it really I, 
to me, that's what kind of put that, that, that was my final push from, you know, uh, being a libertarian to getting more towards that minarchist anarchist, uh, type of feeling is I, I honestly, in, in my lifetime, I, I never would have believed I would have seen what we, what we witnessed during there. And it, it amazing, it's amazing. And it, and it's amazing. It's, it's going to happen again. Um, uh, and, uh, especially the number of people that really, now that it's behind us, they, so many people won't even admit, yeah, that was a mistake. Some have, but most have not. And, and that, is, that itself is a real problem. The, the other thing that bothers, so many of these things bother me about uh, that chapter, and we probably shouldn't spend your entire show on it, but uh, one of the things that bothers me is the Libertarian Party missed a huge opportunity to make hay out of this in the 2020 cycle. So much. Uh, I, I find that uh, wholly frustrating. Um, I also find it a shame that I feel like maybe some people in our party miss that opportunity because we didn't draw a great enough distinction between anti-vax and anti-mandate. In other words, I, I appreciate that some people were wanting to be careful not to be positioned as anti-vaccine. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I get that. Uh, and, you know, for some people in certain categories, you know, you do you, right? Talk to your doctor, um, get all the data you can, do whatever you got to do. If the vaccine is right for you, I'm no biologist, I'm no doctor, I'm not criticizing anybody, you do you. But that doesn't mean that we should not have been criticizing the mandates, Yes. And we should have been very vociferous. We should have been very, very loud about those mandates. The other thing that I believe needs to be said is that we in this country need to be good at separating, as, as we are good at separating church and state, we need to get that good at separating science and state. You know, we need to recognize that the government is not an appropriate actor when it comes to disseminating information about science, uh, sponsoring science, controlling science, uh, government, funding, funding, funding government officials taking royalties. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, how many of us did not know? I did not until a few years ago. I was not aware of that, that no. people like Anthony Fauci were taking money because of vaccine development. Wow, that is wholly inappropriate. I don't know how you do that without raising your hand saying, uh, I recognize I'm getting kickbacks here and I appreciate it, but this is not a good system. We need the government out of that, however you feel about the vaccines, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, if you've got a pre-existing condition, if you're a certain age, you know, I had this discussion with my doctor. Uh, you know, I've got certain characteristics in my background that changed, you know, how I felt about certain uh, vaccines versus others and, and that sort of thing. And of course, uh, you know, your age matters, you know, all of these things need to take, you need to take into consideration. I'm not criticizing anyone who decides they should or should not take the vaccine. I'm just saying, I don't like it when the federal government presumes to itself the authority to control the information in an, in an effort to manipulate what I'm going to do. That's a decision 
that's a decision for my wife to make. She tells me whether I'm going to, you know, do one thing or another. Not, not the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, or some member of the blob. Um, yeah, uh, it, it like, like so the, that whole the whole the whole mandate business, the whole you know masks vaccine that was just so over so over the top. Um, yeah. Oh, masks. Oi. Yeah. And lying to us, lying to us about masks. Right. Right. How low has your life come if you're lying to people about masks? Right. I mean, really? That is that is low. I mean, that's what makes me feel that it was I mean, it was all part of a all part of a design or if I would not planned but the waiting for the opportunity to kind of implement yes. this strategy, right? And here the, the opportunity, opportunity yeah. presented yeah. itself and 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 off they went. Uh, yep. but anyway, moving on um it's got to bring things back here to uh to to speak to some uh some of the libertarians in the audience um to me the most important thing that uh, that our our presidential candidate is is going to is is going to accomplish is to be a spokesperson for the party uh to be a spokesperson for the philosophy and to be a spokesperson for the for the the liberty movement uh tell me how you're going to go? How, you know, you're you're the nominee. You're you're representing the 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 LP after our our convention next May. Uh, what is your what is your strategy? What is your plan to uh, to to get that message out to uh, to the voters that are are thinking about who to, who to who they want for yep. for the new president? Yeah, I appreciate that. There's a couple of different answers to that. One is an attitude change relative to uh, things that we've done in the past. Uh, and past presidential, past national campaigns led by the Libertarian Party. And one is sort of a tactical or strategic change. The campaign that I'm putting together really is nothing like the campaigns that we've had represent us in the past, not just because I have a background with a couple of, uh, uh, a couple of different careers in public policy and public service, but the reason that that is so important is because we're running on a platform that is so policy forward. The reason we believe that's important is twofold. One is because I believe that's how you contribute to developing the brand of the Libertarian Party. You cannot be out there saying, as we did a couple of cycles ago, we're fiscally conservative like Republicans and socially liberal like Democrats. Uh, yes. For one thing, it's not true, okay? Right. Republicans are not fiscally conservative anymore. Uh, I'll leave it to others to argue about the extent to which they ever were. Democrats are no longer in any meaningful sense socially liberal. They, you know, they behave in ways that we don't. We don't run around canceling each other, beating each other into thinking the same way on social issues or running each other out of the party. That's not any way to run a party, run a campaign, run a government. And certainly nothing that you want to leak into uh, the development of your society, of, of your culture. That's where it really takes a, a bite. The Democratic Party no longer stands up for the First Amendment, for example. No. And so. Or the Second Amendment. <laughs> or, or, or anything else that ends in T. Yep. Um, and so it's important to differentiate from the Republican and Democratic parties and define ourselves in our own context. 
we are the philosophical descendants of the people that put together this country and did so for only one legitimate purpose. And that is to protect your individual liberty. Now we can all argue that there are other objectives that were written into the constitution and the declaration of independence, but nobody comes to this continent across the Atlantic ocean 300 years ago for anything but a new opportunity to be left alone and to get away from uh, tyrannical governments elsewhere. That's what this whole experiment is all about. That's what this whole project is all about. And we have gotten away from that. If you're waiting for a Republican, for a Democrat to lead the fight back toward the constitution, in my view, you're waiting for something that's just not gonna happen. So it is an opportunity for us to differentiate from the other parties but I believe more than that, Jim, it's it's an obligation because no one else is going to do it. And I believe that because most Americans have a libertarian streak, they wouldn't characterize it as that, right? right. Having having run for Congress a couple of years ago, I know that you know you spend most of your time just explaining what libertarianism is. Right. But most people in the United States have a libertarian streak. They appreciate uh, pluralistic democracy. They appreciate tolerance, the multiculturalism. Uh, they understand that immigration, opportunity, and entrepreneurialism are the basis for what is the American culture that differentiates us from, from other cultures around the world. Most Americans want to be left alone, ultimately. For this reason, if we plant that flag in the ground hard and raise it high, people will find us as that third option. But if we define ourselves in the context of the other parties, if we seek common ground with Republican politicians and Democratic politicians, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. It is our job to seek common ground with their voters, not with their politicians. And remember, we're not seeking 100%. We're not even looking for 50%. Remember, in a three-way race, for goodness sake, 37% wins. Yep. So, you know, we're looking initially for double digits. Gary Johnson made it to double digits. Uh, the reason, in my view, his campaign fell apart was not because he forgot the name of a town in Syria. The reason his campaign fell apart is because when he did make that mistake, he had not given enough people enough reason to stick with him, to rally around him. Right. Contrast that with Donald Trump, of whom you and I were speaking earlier, who famously said, and I'll get the quote wrong, but paraphrasing, uh, he felt like he could go on to Fifth Avenue and shoot someone without losing a great deal of support. Yes. I'm Again, I'm not su suggesting that we want to be like Donald Trump in any way, shape, or form, but he was right. People knew why they liked him, why they disliked him. Uh, and I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, shooting someone on Fifth Avenue is worse than forgetting the name of a city in Syria. Yes. If he had forgotten what Aleppo was, forgotten the issue, had bungled that question, I don't think his campaign is collapsing the way Gary's did. That's my point is sure. that we need to let people know what it is that we stand for 
so that people know, hey, uh, this is this is what I'm looking for. I recognize the same values. I recognize that that campaign is going in a direction that makes sense, that makes sense in contrast to the political duopoly that has left me. That, I think, is extremely important. The other thing that's important is that we need to run the campaign in a little bit different fashion than the campaign has been run in the past. For example, we need to spend money fast, loud, hard, hard-edged. I often say, if you've got $300,000 in the bank, you've done something wrong. You need to spend that money as it comes in. Do not hoard it for October. There is no value in flaming out at the end. The value is in letting people know there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new choice. You have another choice that has to be differentiated and defined in very different ways from the other parties. And you need to let people know right away, this is the way it's going to go down. It works or it doesn't, but to the extent to which it's going to work, you need to get that ball rolling early. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, honestly, the the first time that uh, that I saw your name uh, was at uh, Reno, uh, the Reno convention. So you, you, you definitely are got a head start on it. Um, I, and I think that I think that's great. Um, and uh, kind of just watching the momentum that your that your campaign has generated, I think has been pretty, pretty impressive. So uh, keep keep rolling that along. Um, uh, there are another there's still a handful of candidates uh, that are looking for the LP nomination. I'm anticipating there'll probably be a few more that uh, will jump in between uh, between now and probably the end of the year. Um, uh, in in the past, we've had candidates announce December, January, even so. I'm expecting uh, expecting a few more. But um, what could you say to other fellow libertarians that um, are looking for a candidate to support? What is going to separate you uh, from those candidates, and 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 why should uh, why should we be looking at you to to lead our party into uh, into 2024? The combination of two things. One is the platform that we're running on, the Gold New Deal. Uh, and if I may, uh, your viewers can go to goldnewdeal.org to read about it. Uh, the Gold New Deal is our commitment to pushing for a new relationship between us and our government. It's a fundamentally new way of reimagining that relationship between us and government. The flagship uh Many of the, the tenants, many of the planks are things that you and I have already discussed, but the flagship is the idea of giving states a way to opt out of federal supremacy and opt into a vehicle by which they can pursue nullification unilaterally. Alternatively, uh, we just believe that the 10th Amendment has not functioned the way that the founders intended it to. This is our way of shoring up that attitude because we think that the relationship between the federal government and states, not to mention federal government and citizens, but the relationship between the federal government and states has gone off the rails. And, and so the Gold New Deal, is our pledge, our commitment to a platform that we will not, indeed cannot back down from. The reason it, it has its own brand, its own name, its own URL is because that is our pledge that we cannot, will not, would not, should not, could not back down from the most transformative ideas in our platform. 
And the other element that I think makes our campaign stand out is our professionalism. We already have 14 people on our paid staff, uh, lightly paid. Uh, let's not get carried away, right? Uh, lightly paid, wonderful people. Uh, in addition to that, we've got a, a dozen people on our uh, advisory committee. We've got uh, dozens more volunteers beyond that. So it's a fairly good sized team already. So we're going to be very, very ready to go. By May, uh, we'll be very ready to go, right? Uh, because here it is uh, August only, and we've already got a good sized team in place combined with my own background in public service and public policy, because the American public expects that. Even if I or your viewers or you or anyone else didn't think that having a background in public service and public policy was a big deal, it doesn't matter. Many in the American electorate do think it's a big deal. Uh, a lot of donors think it's a big deal. A lot of the media believe that it's a big deal. And for that reason, it is important to lead uh, with this background, especially when you're running on a platform of the most transformational ideas. You know, if you're just out there saying, end the Fed, which is an important piece of the Golden Deal, and you don't have a background in economics or at least in public policy, that just sounds like you're standing on the balcony banging to the wind. And you need to be able to back that up with the credibility of having worked with the Federal Reserve System, not as an employee, but having worked with economists uh, over the years and understanding the Fed at a really granular uh, level and at a policy level. So we believe that that's uh, that's very very important. Uh, that's great. Um, I'm gonna. Uh, I had the Gold New Deal up there. I think MikeTermot.com. Uh, if any of the listeners or viewers want to find out more information about your campaign, um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Mike. And uh, let's let's talk again soon, a couple months down the road, and uh, keep in touch. And uh, interested in in, in kind of seeing how how the campaign uh, continues to roll. Thank you, Jim. It's a great joy to be with you with a fellow Chicagoan. I uh, really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank all of you for joining me. If you're watching on YouTube, click that subscribe button to stay updated on the latest episodes. If you're tuning in through Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app, click follow to stay in the loop. You can also follow me on Twitter at Second City Liberty. That's the number two, ND, City Liberty. Check out my website, www.secondcityliberty.com. And if you have an idea for the show or a guest that you would like to see appear on the podcast, shoot me an email, jim at secondcityliberty.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay strapped, and stay based.